see the mix of nationalities here. Hi, this is Patrick Burton. Thank you for joining our Lives Online podcast series sharing highlights of fieldwork Monica Bolger and I completed for UNICEF in East Asia. We share stories that allow you to dive deep into the lives of the 300 children we spoke with about their social media use. This dispatch focuses on teen gaming in East Asia. We move unwieldy desks into a semicircle. The room is hot. Temperature says 94 degrees, but at that point numbers don't really matter. There's no fans, and only some of the windows are open to curb the bugs flying in. It's a Saturday in rural Jakarta. The 11 students sitting in their crisp white and navy uniforms have come to school, especially for our interviews. We go around the room introducing ourselves, giggling with the teens at points when translation seems a challenge. We talk about what apps they're using, how they access, and then we talk about gaming. We play with the world, one 14-year-old says, while her classmates lean in and murmur agreement. They play with their brothers and sisters in the same room, and with local friends, too. Often they stay up all night playing games. We chat, a girl offers, and then there's clarification. Most of the time it's about the game, but it isn't always. Most of the people they play with are strangers, but they don't see them that way. The teens describe people they meet simply as people. They don't know their ages, but figure many are their age. Two girls describe meeting another girl who goes to school in the same region. I thought I was meeting someone new, and then realized we knew each other on Mobile Legends. Days before, in another semicircle, miles away in an upstairs classroom in a shelter for street children in Kuala Lumpur, a 13-year-old boy tips his desk forward as he describes using Instagram, a photo-sharing app, and WhatsApp, a chat app, to promote the gaming trophies he's won. His classmates roll their eyes and laugh. This is a game, not ice-breaking. He responds vehemently when asked if he chats with people during games. We say, go here, go there, find people, shoot, shoot, shoot. Someone asked me, where are you from? And I'm angry. This is a game. So just shh and go play. While interviewing teens in Kuala Lumpur, Jakarta, Phnom Penh, and Bangkok, we learn that games are inherently social and everyone is chatting. At a prep school in Bangkok, 14-year-old girls share they use gaming chat apps like Discord as spaces to discuss homework assignments. Even our teachers are in the group, one girl says, and others chuckle in agreement. Chat rooms, for the most part, seem like fun spaces. Kids in all countries we visit share anecdotes about meeting someone in a game who goes to school nearby and they've met in person. Even the Malaysian boy who said no icebreaking concedes he's open to friendship if they're good at the game, high scorers only. Of course, as with all things online, there's a darker side. Pediatric psychologists we interviewed in Malaysia share that Asian children in particular are vulnerable to Western-style encouragement in gaming. One counselor says that in Asian families, they don't give compliments. So gaming, games are giving gratification, well done, or you're a winner, that they aren't getting at home. Psychologists and social workers were also concerned about children's inability to distinguish fantasy from reality. A psychologist in Malaysia shared a case where a boy described suicide as a reset. In games, the boy explained, when your avatar dies, you get a fresh chance to play again. Counseling him after he survived a suicide attempt, the psychologist said their focus was on distinguishing between games and real life. Secondary school counselors and teachers we spoke with expressed concern that teens are staying up at night to play games and then are exhausted at school. At the prep school in Bangkok, administrators were working to unravel a puzzling case in which one of their female students met a boy 
on gaming app PUBG, whom her father suspects is a pedophile in the UK. As the girl describes the tensions between her father and online friend, she says, he doesn't want to give his address, and I don't think he should have to, but my father is angry. She fiddles with a scarf the online friend had sent her, curling it around her fingers and touching it to her lips as she talks. Her classmates agree that it would be uncomfortable if the parent of someone they met online demanded their address. The girls move around the room as they discuss, alternately perching on the tables of each other's desks. One girl questions whether the boy is actually a boy and not an older man, and the first girl says she's FaceTimed with him. Another points out that the FaceTiming happened with someone, but online, she says, you're never sure who you're talking to. Finally, one classmate leans forward, grasping the first girl's hands, saying, but in the future, you know, maybe be more careful because we don't really know who he is and we don't want to lose you. Wrapped within the fun of games, even the game of meeting people online is an underlying awareness of the risks. While many of the teens we interviewed took precautions to protect their home address, they also felt that privacy was a losing battle. Strategies were endless, starting with multiple accounts and multiple screen names, but those were mostly to protect against parents or boyfriends or girlfriends finding info teens didn't want to share. Consistent with recent London School of Economics and Political Science studies of children's understanding of privacy in digital spaces, teens focused on contextual privacy from those in their immediate sphere. When we asked about protecting themselves from what the platforms collect and share, the majority were at a loss. A refugee in Malaysia shrugged and said, Google knows everything about us, and her classmates agreed. A 14-year-old Eritrean refugee at another school in Kuala Lumpur went further, saying that if Instagram or WhatsApp or Facebook truly cared about their privacy and well-being, hackers wouldn't be able to hack us and strangers wouldn't be able to contact them. Even knowing the risks, most teens took minimal precautions to protect their identity in games, applying their privacy strategies elsewhere in Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook Messenger. One Saturday afternoon, we met with a small group of parents, grandparents, and teens in Kuala Lumpur. We sit in a colorful toy library in the midst of a massive low-income housing complex. Grandparents share that iPads and phones are used by many as babysitters. One parent observes that gaming is a gateway to social media. It's the first place she talked to strangers, one parent says, and this discussion turns to gaming as an entry point, as a place where talking to strangers becomes normalized. There are precautions choosing games where there are not multiple players, playing offline, but eventually kids graduate to the more fun games that they can play with friends. Back in the classroom in rural Jakarta, the heat is forgotten as we chat about Mobile Legends as a place to pass time, chat with friends, and play together. Distinctions between online and real life no longer hold. Gaming is where life happens. Like life, there are sometimes scary things to navigate, but there's also opportunities. For the teens we spoke with, gaming has the highs and lows of normal teenage life, and they're figuring it out as they go. Thank you for listening to this excerpt from Our Lives Online, Use of Social Media by Children and Adolescents in East Asia. To read the report and listen to other excerpts, please visit literacyonline.net. The work was commissioned by UNICEF's East Asia and Pacific Regional Office and supported by the Global Partnership and Fund to End Violence Against Children. If you'd like to respond or provide feedback to this report, we'd love to hear from you. Please tweet to @literacyonline with your thoughts and feedback.